Okay, 2 Samuel chapter 6, if you'll turn there with me as we continue our study through 2 Samuel together. David at this point, as we saw last time, has now taken over uh, in a consolidated way the reign of the entire nation of Israel. Uh, As a result of that, we saw in chapter 5, David also has now moved the capital city, which was initially there in Hebron when he was reigning over the southern kingdom. Uh, He has now claimed and established Jerusalem as the capital city of the nation of Israel and made that his political capital where he has now sort of settled in. We saw he built there in chapter 5 this grand palace and Jerusalem becomes really the center of the nation now that is consolidated under King David's reign as the new king of Israel. And as we come to chapter 6 now, We can tell as David begins his new administration that David was not just content with establishing a government that would be politically strong and militarily strong. Uh, David is very interested in bringing God back to the center of the nation of Israel. And we're going to see here in chapter 6 that David is going to seek now to move the Ark of the Covenant uh, back up to Jerusalem to have it there at the center of the nation because the heart of David, understand as we look at this chapter together, the heart of David and his intention behind this is David wants to bring God back to the center of the nation. Uh, If you remember, the Ark of the Covenant is basically that piece of furniture, we could call it somewhat, uh, that was created by the nation of Israel by God's instruction to them. And remember, it was the one piece of furniture that was in the rear portion of the tabernacle uh, under the instruction of Moses when they first built it. Remember, the tabernacle had the front room, uh, which had a few pieces of furniture in it. There was the table of showbread. Uh, there was the uh, menorah, the golden lampstand. There was the altar of incense. And then there was that thick veil that separated the front room from the rear room and in the rear that was called the Holy of Holies and that's where the Ark of the Covenant was and it was basically a wooden box overlaid with gold with cherubim on top and that was where God according to Exodus 25 manifested his presence and his glory among the people so the Ark of the Covenant has always to the people of God been a representation of the presence of God of God's glory And we saw, unfortunately, what happened back in 1 Samuel was at one point when Israel fell prey to their own immorality and their idolatry, that the Philistines in a conflict actually were able to conquer Israel and for a time, remember, took the Ark of the Covenant and brought it into their land. And it says at that point that the glory of God had departed from Israel. The people had recognized something very sad and tragic had happened. Remember, it wasn't too long that the ark remained in Philistine territory because God, remember, began to plague the Philistine people. And it says that they began to break out in these tumors and they began to recognize this is not like anything else from any of our pagan deities. And they recognized that the presence of the Almighty God, the one true God, was judging them for what they were doing wrong. And remember, it says then that they sent the ark, it tells us. Uh, these are chapters 1 Samuel 4, 5, 6, 7 in this range here. It says they sent the ark of God 
back up to the Jewish people, back up to Israel. They wanted nothing to do with it anymore because they were being plagued by the God of Israel. And when the ark went back up to Israel, it says they put it on a cart, remember, and a few animals were, were pulling the cart. It went back up against their natural instinct, went right back to the Jewish people. And it says at that point that the ark then was kept in the place of Kirjath-Jerim, as we'll see where they get it from tonight. And it there basically remained in the house of a man named Abinadab. And so at this point, the ark really has been absent from the lives of the Jewish people, honestly, for decades. And this is very unique to take into consideration because under the reign of Saul, Saul had no interest in the things of God. Saul had no interest in having the ark of God, again, the central piece of the furnishing of the what was the tabernacle of God and the worship life of the people. For decades and decades under Saul's reign, he had no interest in the presence of God among the people. He had no interest in the, the, the things of God among his administration. He had no interest in the glory of God being at the center of the lives of the people of the nation. But now David has come to power and under David's administration, David desires to see God restored to the center of the lives of his people. And so David now, with this glorious intention in his heart, he's now established his capital city in Jerusalem, and he now wants to retrieve the Ark of God and bring it back to the capital. Again, he wants to restore back God at the center of the nation. That's what his heart is, his intention here. Very good intention, very wise of him to want to do this. The unfortunate thing we're going to see, sort of the lesson in this chapter, is that David goes about doing what is right, but he does the right thing in the wrong way. And that's sort of the central overlying, uh, if you would, uh, I guess, uh, lesson that God teaches David and we learn in this chapter is that it is possible to do the right thing, but to go about it the wrong way. Uh, we have this statement we like to throw around, well, the end justifies the means. Well, not with God. We should never have this mentality, well, as long as we have the right end goal or the right intention, whatever we have to do to accomplish that goal, you know, maybe we need to cut a corner or compromise or do something unbiblical or take a worldly approach to what is a spiritual matter. As long as you know, the end justifies the means to get there, but that's not God's heart. And God doesn't operate that way. God cares that we do things His way in his prescribed manner in accordance with his word and and God doesn't make those kind of uh, you know sort of uh, comments that we would have from a human perspective and we're going to see very clearly here that David goes what is about to do the right thing but he just takes the wrong approach and God deals very severely and David has to be humbled and back up and reevaluate some of these things so without a sort of a backdrop let's look at it together here it tells us in chapter 6 verse 1 that again it says, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah. Now, Baal Judah, we know, is just a term, another name for what we know as Kirjath-Jerim. Uh, Joshua chapter 15 tells us that was the original name of Kirjath-Jerim. It's just referenced in that way here in verse 2. And he went there, it says, to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name the Lord of hosts 
who dwells between the cherubim. So envision what's going on here. It says that David, again, he has this grand idea. We're going to bring the ark back to the center of the nation. And in David's heart, again, remember, David, the Bible describes him as a man after God's own heart. The reason God chose David to be his next king is because God saw this love for the Lord that existed in this young man's life. Remember when he was only maybe 12, 13, 14 years old, a shepherd out in the fields. But God saw this love that David had for the Lord, that he was a worshiper of the Lord above everything else, that he just had a passion for God, this man, and that he would be a great shepherd king for his people Israel. And David now, you have to imagine, this is one of the highlights of him finally coming to powers. He is able to do something like this where he's thinking, we are going to bring God back to the center of our nation. Despite what the prior administration did, we are going to restore the things of God. We're going to honor the presence of God again. We're going to restore the ways of God and the will of God. And for years and years prior to this in the previous administration, that had all been neglected and cast aside. Saul was totally disinterested. And David is now saying, this is the time. And it says, I mean, you could tell his enthusiasm. It says he gathers together. Look at it, verse 1 there. All the choice men of Israel... First Chronicles tells us that this involved the Levites and the priests and the choice men is an indication of the, uh, the, the men who were of importance in the society. So this is the leaders and the elders of the land. Word goes out what David wants to do. And look at this, I mean, entourage of people, 30,000 people. I mean, this is going to be a massive procession here to move the ark from Kirjath-Jerim to Jerusalem is about a 10-mile journey. 30,000 people, 30,000 of the most important, influential individuals from the nation come together with King David now to do this. And it says, He arose and went to bring up the ark of God. Who It says, by the name, and again, reminding us that God dwells between the cherubim. Again, the important thing that, that God wants to drive home in this passage is the error that is made is, is a casual attitude towards the holiness and the presence of God. It's again, it's not that what David did was wrong in its intention. It was the approach in the way that he and the people went about it. There was a neglect to reverence the presence of God, as I said, because the ark was a direct representation. It always was for the people of God's presence and God's glory. And so as they're now bringing up the ark, this exciting thing, verse 3, it tells us how they went about it. It says, verse 3, so they set the ark of God on a new cart. So again, nothing but the best. He's thinking, we're bringing the ark of God, the very ark of God, his glory, that which represents his presence among us. We are bringing the ark of God. So again, it had been sitting there in Kirjath-Jerim in the house of Abinadab. And so they say, look, we need the absolute best. And you can imagine people with the opinions and the thoughts. Was this David's idea? Was it the idea of, hey, we've got to have the best of the best? I mean, we can't just take a, you know, a, a 1987 Hyundai down there to pick that thing. I mean, we need to have the best of the best, the best transportation possible, a brand new card. It must be novel and new and nice, the best thing that we could possibly have. 
And it says, they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, where it had been, which was on the hill. And then Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, so these were men who were in the lineage of the house of the man Abinadab where the ark was brought to years and years ago. So they had some level of familiarity with the ark. It says they drove the new cart. So here you have this procession coming out. The ark is put on the cart. They're bringing it out now. Now question, where does this idea come from, period, for the Jews, for David and all the people of Israel to put the ark of the covenant on a cart well that didn't come from the word of God that came from the worldly ideas and the patterns of the Philistines again if you read first Samuel as we studied it together chapters 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 the way that the ark was returned back to Israel was on a cart the Philistines a worldly pagan people that was their idea how to transport the cart. That was not according to what the word of God prescribed. That was according to the patterns of how the world did things. And so no doubt this is where that idea comes from. Hey, this thing's on a cart. It had been transported on a cart, but it's okay. So that's a great idea, but we just have to have a really new, awesome, high-tech, expensive, best of the best cart to transport when the reality is that was completely contradictory to everything that God had prescribed regarding moving the ark. Again, if you remember from Exodus chapter 25 and Numbers chapter 4, God prescribed that the ark of the covenant was to be moved in a very specific way. It was to be carried on the shoulders of a group of the Levite people and not just the Levites themselves, but particularly the family line of Kohath. And it says that they were to go into where the ark was. They were to cover it, walking in backwards. The ark was not to be looked upon with the eye or the Bible said that a person would die. It was not to be touched with a hand or a person would die. And it was to have poles, remember, that were put through the the hoops that were basically on the four corners. They were to put golden poles through it and then they were to carry it on their shoulders. It wasn't to be just thrown on a cart and pushed or shoved around or pulled by some animals or moved in a quick way. It was in a reverential way that they were to represent that they respected the presence of awesome almighty God and it was to be carried by poles. So again, what you have here is a violation of the word of God in a desire to really adopt the ways of the world instead. And and let me just say... I think one of the biggest mistakes sometimes that we make as God's people to this day still is we may have a heart to do the things of God. We may have a heart to want to usher in the presence of God and to see God's presence and to see God's glory. And sadly, instead of doing things according to the way God has prescribed them in his word, we look to the patterns of the world and we try and take the patterns of the world and implement them for the practices of how we do things in the house of God and in church life and in ministry and the things we try and do for the Lord. And we say, well, well, how does the world do it? What do they do? And, and so we think, okay, well, we, that means we must have to get all the newest, nicest, high-tech stuff and if we're loaded to bear with lots of new carts and we get lots of people together and we do that's how the world did it that's how the Philistines did it 
And we take the ideas of the world and we try and implement them in the church and that always leads to very grievous mistake. God's work is to be done God's way. And such many times that's very, very different from the way that the world would do things in business or how things are happening as far as the patterns of this world. So they're now driving this car. You can see this big entourage. Look at it. It's like a big parade. Verse 4. It says, And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Verse 4. Accompanying the ark. And Ahio went before the ark. And then David, verse 5, And all of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments and fir wood, on harps and stringed instruments, on tambourines and sistrums and cymbals. So, I mean, you have this incredible celebration, this massive parade, and there is just loud music and big crowds. And you have interesting, you know, Uzzah and Ohio, and their names mean strong and friendly. And again, this is such a picture of so often, you know, okay, well, that's what it is. We have to just be really strong in everything that we do, and we have to be really friendly, and we have to have really good, loud, lots of music, and if we get lots of people in big crowds, and we take the patterns the way the world does stuff, because that's what people are impressed by, if we put all that together and we get really enthusiastic, then we'll see the presence of God ushered in. And, and we'll see God do amazing and incredible things. And watch, though they were having a fantastic time themselves, they were enjoying themselves. We're going to see in a moment, God wasn't enjoying himself. And we always have to remember that at the end of the day, anything that we do as God's people in our worship, in our ministry, it's not about what's pleasing to us. It's about what's pleasing to the presence of the Lord. It's for the Lord that we do what we do. And, and quite frankly, we can do a lot of things and get very enthusiastic and very emotional and really have a wonderful time and get really blessed. And in the meanwhile, God's not being blessed at all. And God's not pleased at all. And watch what happens here. It's very unfortunate. Verse 6 says, when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, as they're in this grand procession, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God that took hold of it, for the oxen had stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah and God struck him there for his error and he died there by the ark of God. So you can picture this. Here's this incredible procession, 30,000 people, musicians, all these instruments, the noise, the cheers, the enthusiasm. They're moving forward, this awesome, beautiful new cart they built just for the occasion and then somehow... Perhaps the wheel of the cart hits something like a little stone or a pebble along the way. You ever ride a skateboard and you'll be going really fast on a skateboard or seeing someone else uh, and, and you hit a stone and all of a sudden it just stops and, and there you go and, and all of a sudden you go flying. Well, this is the idea here. Something happened, uneven terrain or something. The, the arc uh, begins to sort of shake a little bit because the oxen stumble. And so now it's looking like potentially the arc might fall off the cart and fall on the ground. And so Uzzah here instinctively, just instinctively, just reaches out his hand to think, oh my goodness, God's about to fall and I don't want him to fall and not be able to get up. So he reaches out his hand, and that would be horrible. This would be embarrassing if the ark falls on the ground. So he reaches out his hand to stabilize the ark, and when he touches the ark, which again, remember, was what? A representation of the presence of God. 
when he touches it, it says he dies on the spot. God allows him to die. Now listen, lest you look at that and think, well, man, that sounds really severe and seems awfully harsh. Well, listen, all of that is, first and foremost, is just God keeping his word. God had told them how they were to transport the ark. God had told them, Exodus 24, Numbers chapter 4, that no one was to look upon the ark or touch it lest they die. God had told them that. And again, the whole purpose of all of this was that God wanted his people to have very deeply ingrained into their hearts, yes, he's a loving God. Yes, he's a compassionate God. But that they would know that God is holy and that God is awesome. And that though God is kind and loving and compassionate and good, he also is a holy, righteous, consuming fire. He's an awesome God. And that they were to respect the presence of God. And that they would never get too casual in their approach or attitude. And to realize, again, even the, the whole setup of the tabernacle with the thick veil that kept the people from going into the Holy of Holies. Remember, only one time a year, once a year, one man, the high priest, could go behind that veil. And only, remember, with the blood of the sacrifice of an innocent substitute to go back and apply the blood there upon the ark to make atonement for the sins of the people. Only one time one person could go back into where the presence of God was through the shed blood of an innocent substitute. You could not just casually go right into the presence of God. Now, thank goodness, as a result of the work of Jesus Christ, we do have access into the very presence of God, that we can come boldly to the throne of grace. It says that when Jesus died on the cross, that it says the veil of the temple was rent, and it says from top to bottom from top to bottom so look when that veil rent as jesus was dying for our sins upon the cross that veil which represented separation between holy awesome god and sinful defiled humanity that separated us because of our sin that veil that barrier was taken away at the work of jesus christ and it says the veil ripped from top to bottom which means it wasn't a group of priests down at the bottom going like this with some really strong shears cutting their way up and saying okay we're done with this veil it was God reaching down and in a divine way finally tearing apart that veil and saying, finally, the work of my son is so sufficient there no longer needs to be any barrier between me and humanity. Now what I've always wanted, humanity can come directly to me. Directly to me. They can have access into my presence. But in this time and in this day, it was meant to impress upon the people's minds and hearts very strongly that you could not just boldly march into the presence of God in your own state and sinful condition. There was a separation. So as Uzzah does this instinctively and he touches the ark of God and he puts out his hand in some way, touches the glory of God and, and that which was something he was in violation of the word of God, God honored his word and he died on the spot. Now, can you imagine, let's put ourselves into the story. Can you imagine the awkward silence as that took place? 30,000 people. Everyone's excited. We're bringing the ark back, this awesome cart, and it's moving along, and all the music's playing, and everyone is excited and enthusiastic. And then it stumbles a little bit, and all of a sudden, he touches it, and he drops dead on the spot. And you want to talk about a sobering, awkward moment there, where all of a sudden, people real what happened? And much like other occasions, we do have a few of them in the Word of God. 
Remember Nadab and Abihu? Where they died because they dishonored the presence of God and God said, I will share my glory no, no other. In Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, same thing. The, the power and the presence of the holiness of God was so strong in the early church. Remember Ananias and Sapphira, they died on the spot because of their hypocrisy before God as God was demonstrating his power and the awesomeness of who he was among his people. And here we have another one of these occasions in history where God very strongly broke into the situation and basically said, listen, you may be having a good time, but I'm not. And my presence is not being honored. And the way that I prescribe things according to my word is not being observed and because God's word was being disregarded. And again, why was it being disregarded? Was there a lack of familiarity? Was there just you know, a, a, a casual attitude that they just felt that they could do things? We could only speculate. The bottom line is, is they had the word of God and they weren't observing it. They weren't honoring God's word. And so they weren't honoring God's presence. And God shows his displeasure in a very strong way. And notice verse 7. Again, this must have been a very sobering reality. It says there, And then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah. God struck him for his error. It was error, what he did. And he died before the ark of the Lord. And verse 8, David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. And he called the name of that place Perez Uzzah or outbreak against Uzzah to this day. Interesting, it says David became angry because of what happened. Now, question, did David become angry at God? Maybe. Was David angry with himself? Maybe. It just says he became angry. His first reaction was anger because not only did God in that moment show the awesomeness of his power and, and discipline, if you would, Uzzah for his error, here's what else happened. And David knew it. God had just publicly humbled David before all the people in the land because this was David's idea. And David was the one directing all of this. And so now David has been publicly humbled as a leader before all the people. And he has a very strong reaction. It says he's, he's angry at this moment. His first response, again, whether he's angry at God or he's angry at himself, what was I doing? And, but, but he has anger. And then his anger shifts, verse 9, notice to where it should shift, which is the fear of God. And it starts out with being angry, but then as he steps back and thinks it through, it says, and then David was afraid of the Lord. Now, that's a good thing. He has a fear of God now. The reverence of God comes into his heart as it ultimately should. And he said that day, verse 9, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? What he's basically saying there is, is how can the presence of God come to me? And David recognizes, who am I to think that I could be in the presence of God? And the fear of the Lord just grips his heart, which is a very healthy thing because the Bible tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge. For us to really begin to have proper knowledge about anything, spiritual, moral, personal, anything, the fear of God is the first step towards being able to know and understand things in a right way. And so David here, the fear of the Lord, grips his heart. He says, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David, verse 10, would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David. But instead, he took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. 
And the ark of the Lord, it says, remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. So David at this point, complete change of plans. He says, I, I don't know what I'm thinking and perhaps maybe I need to reevaluate what I was doing. Something went wrong here. And again, it wasn't David's heart was wrong. It wasn't his desire. His desire was wonderful. Good intention, great idea, very godly you know, purpose and reason behind what he wants to do and going about the right thing, but he just was going about it the wrong way. And David realizes, I, hold on, I need to reevaluate here. So he doesn't allow the ark to come to Jerusalem. He takes it aside into the house of someone else and sort of just allows it to be positioned there for a time. It says for the next three months, the house remained or the ark remained in the house of this man, Obed-Edom the Gittite. And what's interesting is it tells us in 1 Chronicles chapter 15 there that during these three months, what David did was he instructed the people to search out the word of God and to find out what they did wrong and what was the proper way to transport the ark of God. And it's at this point that David, having just been humbled and having just failed miserably and dealing with what took place, steps back and he says, you know what? We need to go search and see what the word of God says in regards to what we have done wrong because we just did things the wrong way. And God's shown his displeasure for that. And he says, we need to see what the word of God says to find out what is the right way to do this. What's the prescribed way to do this? And let me say something. Boy, that is really, really good example set for us in David there. When something happens and it doesn't go right and God humbles us and reveals to us that what we were doing, even if it was an okay or a good thing, but we were going about it the wrong way and God puts a severe stop to the situation and opens up our eyes and the fear of God grips our heart. You know what? The best thing we could do is put life in neutral and go search the word of God and go see what God's word would say to us, what we did wrong and what God would want us to do and what is the right way to go about what we're trying to do according to what the word of God says. How does God want us to handle this? What does God's word say is the prescribed way that we're supposed to do these things that we're trying to do. And so David, it says in First Chronicles account, tells the people, go, consult, seek out the word of God. And it's during these three months that that's taking place. And while the ark is there, notice in the house of Obed-Edom, it says, verse 11, that the Lord was blessing the house of Obed-Edom. His whole household was blessed. So notice, there was no problem with God. There was no problem with the ark. The problem was on their end in regards to how they were relating to God. So word comes back, man, this guy's house is being blessed. The presence of God is causing blessing in this man's household. And I'll tell you something. Do you want your household to be blessed? That's how a household gets blessed. A household gets blessed by inviting the presence of God into the home. When the presence of God is in a home, any family, that is going to be the beginning of the blessing of a household. The Lord blessed the household of Obed-Edom because God's presence was there with the ark among the house of Obed-Edom as it was in his home for those three months. And verse 12 says, Now it was told to David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him. Notice, as I just said, because 
of the ark of God. God's blessing this man because the ark of God, the presence of God, is with him in his home. So David, verse 12, goes on to say, went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. Now notice, here's trial two. David here, and I appreciate this, David does not allow one failure in his life. He doesn't let a mistake, he doesn't let an error, he doesn't let a shortcoming be something that prohibits him from continuing to do the things that God would want him to do. He doesn't let the call of God be forsaken in his life. He doesn't let the plan of God be completely terminated because he failed or because he made a mistake or because he's embarrassed because some error or situation went wrong. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, don't let failure or error or mistakes keep you from following the call and the will of God for your life. Everybody makes mistakes. We all fail. We're all going to along the way commit errors and we're going to do things wrong and we're going to have to learn and grow and, and don't let the mistakes that you make just paralyze you. Learn from them. Let it be something where you grow and you seek God and you learn and then you regroup and you with faith and courage go back and begin to re-engage in that thing that God's led you to do, doing it in the right way this time. Doing it being led by the Spirit and being guided by the Word of God and not your own ideas or worldly patterns maybe that led you to make the mistakes you did in the past. So I love this. David says, we're going to do this. We've learned how from the Word of God now and we're going to bring up the ark the right way. And verse 13 says, so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. So notice verse 13, how they're doing it now. There's no cart involved. It says there, verse 13, so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord. Now it's being done the right way. It's being done God's way. It's being done according to the patterns and principles of God's word and his instructions. He's now gathered the right people. Again, First Chronicles gives us the fuller account of these things. And now they're carrying the ark of God. No cart, no quick moving, none of that kind of stuff. They're now bearing the ark on their shoulders. And look what happens. You want to talk about not only obeying, again, the scriptural mandate of how to do things but you want to talk about being seriously reverent it says they went six paces so they carry they're carrying that ark they went six steps and at six steps just to make sure that things didn't go haywire they stopped and it says there that sacrifices were made of oxen and fatted sheep so again notice the difference here as things are being done God's way, it's being done in accordance with the word of God. There's not hastiness in the way things are being done. They're moving very slow now. They're being patient. There's sacrifice. There's blood being shed. Very different. Again, they're desiring to see the presence of God ushered in. But, but how is the presence of God ushered in? The presence of God is ushered in by obeying the word of God, doing things God's way, being patient to let God do what he wants to do in his timing, not trying to rush things or force things or manipulate things. They're no longer using worldly patterns. They're doing things biblically now. There's sacrifice. There is reverence for the presence of God. They care about that now. Six paces. They will stop. That's enough. 
Let's make sure God's pleased. And six paces, they stop and they begin to just offer worshipful sacrifices to the Lord. They want to make sure that God is honored in everything that they're doing now. In verse 14, David, it says, danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. And again, that linen ephod is is really just a a picture of, of humility before the Lord. This is what the priests would wear, the linen ephod. The picture here is David has taken off his royal robes. He doesn't want to be King David right now. What David wants to be right now is just a common worshiper. And David just wants to be among the crowd. He wants to be among everyone else. And he takes off his royal garments. He takes off the kingly robes. And he's just wearing the linen ephod like the priests would wear, like a common man. And he just in humility here is just expressing himself in worship before the Lord as others were dancing and and celebrating the goodness of God. This is a wonderful thing. They're doing this the right way now. They're wanting to honor God. And it says, verse 15, David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with a sound of the trumpet. So again, notice, they're still celebrating. Again, shows you there's nothing wrong with the music. There's nothing wrong with the worship and the celebration. It was just doing things the right way as compared to doing them the wrong way. Again, they're worshiping with great enthusiasm now, but they're doing it unto the Lord and not just to have a grand celebration for their own enthusiastic, you know, good time to bless themselves. They're doing it to honor the presence of God now. In verse 16, notice things begin to get problematic now. And the reason is, is because David's in step with the Lord. And I can tell you something, whenever you get in step with the Lord, you're going to start to step on the enemy's toes. And David here is now in step with the Lord. He's doing the right thing. And as a result, there's going to be some backlash. Things are about to get difficult and David's going to suffer some. You know, there's that statement, no good deed goes unpunished. (laughs) And the same is true in the kingdom of God. So now they're they're right in step with the Lord. The presence of God is being brought back to the center of the nation of Israel. Everyone is in line with what God is doing. There's this celebration to honor the Lord. And verse 16 says, Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, remember David's first wife, she looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord. Now understand, he was not the only one doing this, but but her issue, it says, is this was King David, and this is what we want to focus in on. She saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So she looks out the window, and she sees as queen to David, She sees King David acting just like a common man and and having stripped his royal robes and, and seeking to just blend in among the people of God because David cares about nothing at this point, but he just wants to be a worshiper. He doesn't care about his status or his image or his royal position or what people think of him. All David cares about in this moment is, God, are you pleased? God, I love you. And I'm just a worshiper. Above everything else, God, I just want to be a worshiper. And, and she sees this and she despises in her heart what David is doing because she feels, we're going to see, humiliated by this. She feels disgraced by this. Because if David is just a common person, well, what does that make her? She's the queen. 
And so she despises David's worship and, and sad here, you know, when someone becomes passionate for the Lord, someone begins to just express their love for the Lord, there's probably no sadder thing than instead of somebody being encouraged by that, people despise them for it. People actually have animosity towards them. And interesting enough, this is his own spouse. Well, isn't that fitting? Because the truth of the matter is, I'll tell you this, there are people at times who begin to fall in love with the Lord and seek the Lord. And like David, they just want to become a worshiper of the Lord. And their spouse sees them seeking the Lord and worshiping the Lord and loving the Lord. And instead of their spouse saying, well, this is fantastic. You're becoming a godly individual. You're starting to become more. Instead, what do they do? They actually despise it. And they despise your worship. And, and they have animosity towards your seeking of God and your life for the Lord and your love for the Lord. And they actually, your own spouse sometime can be the one who feels very antagonistic towards that. And so she's now despising David, verse 17. So they brought the ark of the Lord, set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. And David offered, notice, burnt offerings and peace offerings, remember the burnt offerings was where they would allow the entire animal to be consumed upon the altar. Nothing of it was eaten or partaken of. The whole carcass was consumed in the fire. And it was a picture of just you wanted your life to be fully consumed by God, just fully consecrated to God. The peace offering was where as a worshiper, the animal would be offered. And you would eat a portion of the meat and you would also donate a portion of the meat to God. And the idea was that you were having a meal with God and the priest would also share a portion. It was a picture of fellowship with God and a communal meal. So David now, again, more offerings, more expression of worship. And when David had finished, it says, offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And whenever you've been worshiping the Lord, this is going to often be the outflow. When you've been worshiping the Lord and experiencing the gladness and the goodness of the Lord, it often makes you someone who wants to bless others. It's the byproduct of someone who's a worshiper of the Lord. They become very unselfish. They want to be a channel of God to bless other people. So David now, the king, watch this. He wants to bless the people. He's celebrating the goodness of God. And it says, verse 19, he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both women and and the men to everyone. And again, remember, this is quite a large group here. To everyone, he sent them home with a loaf of bread and a piece of meat and a cake of raisins. That's an Old Testament description of dessert. So all the people depart and everyone to his house. And look at this. Now here's David. He's just blessed all the people and he's thinking, I, this is so good. It's been a great day. God's finally you know, allowing this to all come to pass and he's pleased with us and he is just on a spiritual high. Can you imagine? On a spiritual high. Like coming home from like a really awesome you know, men's retreat or a women's retreat. He just had this spiritual high and he's ready to go home. He's just blessed all people. He's saying, I can't wait to go home and just to bless my household and to share everything that God's done. And no sooner does David pull up into the driveway. He doesn't even get into the house. He doesn't even get through the door. And here comes Michal, the daughter of Saul, out to meet David. She couldn't even wait until he got in the house. And right away, look at her, how glorious was the king of Israel today uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So she greets David with an entourage of what? Insults and criticism 
and disrespect. I mean, you can almost hear the, the, the tone of her voice, the sarcasm. How glorious. The king of Israel today. Dancing around like one of the shameless commoners in Israel. And, and, and just begins to utterly disrespect him and, and cast you know, a negative attitude towards what he's been doing. And again, it's not the fact of what he was doing. Her issue was, David wasn't doing anything inappropriate. He didn't uncover himself in a way whereby he was exposing himself. That's not the point. What she was upset about was that he uncovered himself by stripping himself of his royalty and his dignity and this incredible image of importance as the king of Israel and that he had conducted himself just like one of the guys, just like a commoner, and that he had just worshipped the Lord and, and she felt shamed and disgraced. So she begins with cutting words to criticize David and to, to disrespect him and disregard him. And again, you have to imagine how, how painful that must have been for David, how hurtful. I mean, it's hurtful enough, right, when people insult us and when people criticize us and for anybody to be disrespected. But when you're hurt or insulted or disrespected because of your love for the Lord, because you're trying to do what's right, to do what's righteous, I mean, that is probably one of the most difficult forms of criticism and sharp words to hear towards you when someone's being cruel with their words and mocking and disrespectful. And again, let me just say, this is something that causes conflict and you're going to see, and it's something that causes a real issue. Because again, these words are going to pierce her husband and, and it's going to cause a real problem in the marriage long term. And, and again, the Bible tells us you know, that, that wives are called to reverence their husbands, to respect their husbands. And it's not just because David's a king. Listen, when you disrespect a man with your words, ladies, that is probably one of the most destructive things that you can do in a relationship and she comes out here and she just lets loose she cuts into him and gives him a piece of her mind negative criticism and look verse 21 so David said to Michael it was before the Lord again he says I, I wasn't doing this for you or anyone else anyway what I was doing I was doing for the Lord I was doing it in the presence of the Lord to worship the Lord and then notice David gets a little sarcastic in return. He says it was before the Lord, listen to his language, to his wife, who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord and I will be even more undignified than this and will humble, be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you've spoken by them, I will be held in honor. So again, what happens? Sharp words. Typically, this is how marriage goes or any relationship. Sharp words are met by sharp words in return. So David now, he feels insulted. He feels dishonored and disrespected. And he says, listen, first of all, you're not the one whose approval I'm looking for anyway. I care about the Lord's approval. And he says, I was doing this for the Lord. And I will continue to do this for the Lord. And I will continue to humble myself before the Lord because it is the right thing to do. And then, of course, David, unable to show restraint, as we often can, had to throw in also that. He says, and by the way, remember the Lord chose me instead of your father. Had to go there, right? 
had to go there. Because again, who did she learn these things from? Listen, she only had one other reference point for a king, right? It was King Saul. So in her mind, you're not acting like a king. My daddy would never have done that. And so she brings into this whole thing. You're not acting like my father. You're not behaving the way my father did. And look, that's always a really bad idea for marriage too. And David says, listen, let's be honest here. The Lord chose me instead of your father. He set aside your father. And now in this cutting way, he returns harsh words back towards her. Again, more damage to the relationship. And he says, I'm going to continue to worship the Lord whether you like it or not. I do appreciate David's determination that he didn't let a cantankerous woman complaining about his relationship with the Lord stop him from pursuing and seeking God. And listen, I don't care who it is that criticizes you, mocks you, and disrespects you for your love for the Lord. I don't care even if it is your spouse. And I'm telling you to call attention to your marriage. That's not what I'm telling you. But I'm telling you, you don't let anybody stop you from worshiping the Lord. You worship the Lord. And you walk in humility and seek and love the Lord no matter what anybody has to say and always put him first. And David says, this is what I'll continue to do. And look at the sad ending, verse 23. Therefore, it says, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. So from this point forward, it says that Michael never bore any children. Now, that's, again, understanding that day in Israel, that was a disgrace. For a woman not to be able to bear children was a disgraceful thing, was a dishonored thing. Now, what's the case there? Well, very likely, if you just think it out pragmatically, probably what transpired is as the result of that conflict that just happened there, David's attitude was probably, you know what? You'll never be in my bedchamber ever again. I'm shutting you off. I'm done with you. And so the two of them probably never had an intimate relationship going forward. And as a result, she never was impregnated, never was able to carry a seed to further her family line. And David, as a reaction, probably just chose to become hard and distant and he shut down and shut her off and allowed her to live the rest of her life in isolation. And very likely he probably took care of her, but they probably never shared a bedroom again. And unfortunately, this, again, ten times can be the byproduct of tension and problems and breakdown in relationships. And sadly, here, uh, you know, let, let me leave you with this thought. Think of what Mikal does here, Michael Mikal, however it's pronounced, there's always debate there. She's someone who is critical towards others in their worship and their walk and their pursuit of the Lord. She has a critical spirit And as a result of her critical spirit, she becomes a fruitless and a barren individual. And I want to tell you something. When somebody begins to develop a critical spirit and a critical attitude, where where their primary thing is they just want to look among God's people and, and, and they're just looking to point out what's wrong and who's doing what's wrong and they're doing it the wrong way and you just have a critical negative Attitude, I'll tell you something, that is going to lead to a very unfruitful spiritual life. Because you're going to isolate people from you and you're going to be a miserable, isolated individual. And you're not going to experience the things that God intends because that is going to bring a barrenness to your soul. Why don't we stand together? Let's pray.